0: If you would, please join in me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm chapter 17. As we turn to God's word, let's also turn to him in prayer, asking for his aid and assistance. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving your very word for your people. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to open our eyes to see the truth, open our ears to hear the truth, open up our hearts to embrace the truth, open up our minds to know the truth, and strengthen our hands and feet to walk in your ways. Father, may your word that's before us be our rule, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and may your greater glory be our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Here we are at uh, week number 17 in this ongoing summer series, seeing all of life as worship through the Psalms. As we've been saying, Psalms are both, at the same time, uh, familiar and foreign. Uh, They're familiar in the sense that some of us, we have our favorites, but they're foreign because I bet as we go through all 150 Psalms over the years, we are going to hit some Psalms that... Maybe honestly you've never read, you've never thought about. It's foreign in that sense, but it's foreign also because they were written a long time ago in a place far away. Written over 12 centuries from the 15th to the 3rd century B.C. These are songs and prayers offered to God by Israel. It's the hymn and prayer book for the church. Did you notice we already sang... Psalm 103, and we sang the first half or so of Psalm 17. It's a song book. They are diverse and yet unified, as they are centered upon the one true and living God, and as they always somehow bring together the the divine human encounter. As poetry, of course, they calls us to slow down and think and reflect and meditate and hopefully ask questions. They, they help us grow in our understanding of God and His ways. As we read them with faith, we walk away not just with more knowledge, but we, we walk away transformed with a growing affection for the Lord. So we've already been singing psalms today. Psalms are part of the corporate worship of God, and they're also for individual and family worship as well. I've been saying that we as a church need not exclusive psalmody because we sing, of course, hymns and other things outside the psalms, but by all means, let's continue to sing what's in Scripture before us. The psalms indeed promote not just corporate worship on the Lord's day, but all of life worship. Remember Luther says that the, that the Psalms are like a little Bible and that everything contained in the Scriptures is found here. Calvin, the other great reformer that followed Luther, says that, that the, in the Psalms is an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Like a mirror, we see who we are in the Psalms. And so, because of this, a little Bible and an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, um, when we come to the Psalms in corporate worship on the Lord's day, we are reoriented and we are realigned. The thoughts and the affections, the thoughts of our minds and the affections of our hearts need to be reoriented to God because quite honestly, the the distractions of the world and life in a sinful and fallen world tend to um, disorient us. And we need to be reoriented, and the psalms help us. The psalms also help our thoughts uh, and affections to be realigned by the truth of God's Word, not just brought back to God Himself, but to be, as it were, fine-tuned to the Lord, His truth, His ways. Now, looking at Psalm 17 before us, um, what's the structure, what's the outline of this? you can see that it's like many psalms; it's a movement from trouble to triumph. In, in the first five verses, you see David's condition. In the next uh, verses, six through twelve, you see David's cry. And in the last verses, thirteen through fifteen, you see David's consolation. You see in the first five verses a plea for vindication. In verses six through fourteen, a plea for protection. And then finally, in verse fifteen, it ends with great confidence. But our approach to Psalm 17 will be guided and governed by the heading and a bold declaration found in the middle of Psalm 17. Notice the heading, a prayer of David, a prayer of David. This is the first psalm in the Psalter that's explicitly called a prayer. I believe two times before there's the word prayer in the Psalms where the author, David, in most cases is saying um, it is my prayer or something like that. But this is the one that's actually labeled a prayer of David. And if you look at just how it opens, hear a just calls, O Lord, attend to my cry, a just calls, a, a righteous calls, as we will see as we work our way through Uh, The man who is praying this, who's writing this, is is saying that I'm a righteous man. And hence the title, The Prayer of a Righteous Man. Some of you may be familiar with uh, the letter of James. James 5, the second half of verse 16 says this, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Another translation The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Here's another translation. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The effective prayer of a a righteous man is powerful and effective. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. All these translations are saying something about the prayer of a righteous man. Remember in Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, it starts off when the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. And you see the, the Lord's Prayer is the response of that, of that asking of the disciples. And, and as our catechism rightly says, that it's not just the Lord's Prayer, it's all of God's Word. And in particular, I believe the Psalms will help us to learn how to pray, to be taught to pray, to, to start to pray, as it were, in another language that's not natural uh, from the beginning. We are learning to pray. It's an authorized, as it were, response to God. We are praying God's word back to Him. But I want you to look now, not just at the heading, but look at the uh, verse 6. Verse 6, kind of in the middle. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Um, You will answer me. Do you think there's a doubt in the mind of David? Do you think there's a doubt in the mind of the psalmist there? Absolutely not. Certainty, confidence, assurance. You will answer me, O God. It is a bold declaration It is not just confidence in prayer, but I want to go as far as to say it is a guarantee of prayer. And I believe as we work our way through this psalm, we are going to see a three-stage way you can guarantee your prayer will be answered. There are going to be three steps to ensure that God will listen to your prayer and answer you. Now, I know some of you, have been longing for a how-to sermon, right? Because that's what you're used to, and that's what you often don't get here, right? How to. Well, and you've got to bear with me to the end on this, okay? This is going to be a how-to sermon. Here it is. Here's how to pray so that God, in the words of verse 6, will answer. Have And this is the outline for those of you that need it, that it didn't make it into the book. Have the right heart, be in the right position, and have the right attitude or show or demonstrate the right attitude. The right heart, the right position, and finally the right attitude. Verses 1 through 5, have the right heart. Let me read that now. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me. And you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths, my feet have not slipped. Here, in these first five verses, you hear the request or the plea for vindication. Notice it is not a request for mercy, it is rather a request for vindication why why is David so confident that he will be vindicated why because David is saying in so many words I am deeply and completely innocent look at the detail he is he says these are the claims David says I am free of deceit He's saying that he wants the Lord to behold the right, the rightness of himself and his actions. Um, look at, uh, he, he says this um, I, uh, I have not transgressed, I have avoided the ways, I have held fast your past, my feet have not slipped. He's not only not done the wrong thing, he's always done the right thing. And notice, he is tried and tested. He is opening himself up to inspection and he is telling God, you will find nothing and you have found nothing. Look at verse 3. You have tried my heart, you have visited me by night. How many of you all are tired at night? Yes. That's why we go to sleep. And how many of you kind of don't have really good conversations in the middle of the night, right? Come on, some of us have experienced that, right? He, David is saying, even at a time of physical weakness, you're not going to find anything. David is incredibly bold. I am open to inspection, nothing found. As I read these words, I, I thought of the prophet Isaiah in chapter uh, 59, where we read these in the first two verses of Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or His ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. David is saying, uh, there is no separation. You're hearing me. You're listening to me. You're going to answer me. You are finding no iniquity. Now, David, the human, the king. Really? You're really saying this? Now, if David is writing this before his time with Bathsheba, adultery, deceit, murder, then David is incredibly naive. If he's writing after the sin with Bathsheba and everyone else, then he is incredibly hypocritical. But David's prayer is saying this, I am innocent, therefore vindicate me. So the first thing you and I need to guarantee that our prayers will be heard is to possess the right heart, the innocent heart, the heart free of iniquity, Not only do we need to have the right heart, but we also need to be in the right position. Let's look at verses 6 through 12, the right position. David continues, I call upon you for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their eyes, their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. So David is saying in the psalm, uh, if you want God to guarantee that he will hear your prayer, not only have the right heart, but be in the right position. And who is David? David is the king, and he's praying as the king, and he's the representative of God's people. Now in verse 7, we see this. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. This is a marvelous echo from Exodus 15 that we heard read earlier. Verses 11 through 13 in particular. Wonders. Remember the Lord wondrously, miraculously delivered His people. And what did the Lord demonstrate? His steadfast love, His covenant faithfulness. David is going back to that time in Israel's history And reminding the Lord, Lord, you were our deliverer. Be our deliverer now. And at your right hand, the Lord works mighty deeds. His right hand is there, strengthened to do battle for God's people. So verse 7 echoes the song sung at the time of the rescue from Egypt. But also verse 8 continues... Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. That's an echo of Deuteronomy chapter 32, in particular verse 10, where that same language as God's people being the apple of His eye is used. The apple of your eye. The original language really says the pupil of your eye. I think apple of your eye sounds better. But I want you to think about with me for a minute. Um, Years ago, um, boxing used to be pretty popular in the US. In fact, probably the most famous boxer was the Kentucky native Cassius Clay, now uh, then Muhammad Ali. And if you remember how boxers box, they take blows, right? Chest blows, arm blows, kitty blows. But what do you always see a boxer do? Cover, there we go. Cover up the eyes. Why? Because the eyes are a precious part of your body and you will do anything and everything to defend them. That's why when I get examined by an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, I am doing my best to defend my eyes and not let them touch it. The preciousness. David is saying, Lord, your people are the most valuable part of your possession. We are the apple of your eye. Defend us at all cost. David's prayer earlier was, vindicate me, I'm innocent. Here he's saying, I am king. And do for us, do for me, what you did for your people at the time of the exodus. So we've now seen two things that are needed to, have our, to guarantee that our prayer will be answered by God. To have the right heart and to be in the right position. To be, as it were, one of God's people. Now something else is needed and we see that finally in verses 13 through 15. To show or to demonstrate the right attitude. Look with me at verse 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Here, David's prayer is this, God, bring your forces to bear on my behalf, on the behalf of your people. Here, David is saying, hey God, you and your people have an alliance. You will be their God and we will be your people. The alliance of God and His people and I hope you will see in here that, that it's not an overlap of interest, but it's an identity of interest. Think with me back to World War II. You had the Axis powers, the bad guys. And then you had the Allies, and you think in particular of the United States and uh, Great Britain and Russia, the Allied powers. Now, do you think our interest in World War II was identical? Do you think we wanting the British Empire to continue was really what we wanted to see happen? No, our interests weren't identical, and you certainly saw that in the Soviet Union and the United States. They weren't identical, but they overlapped. There was a common co-belligerency, as it were. But that's not what David is saying. David is saying, God, our interests are identical. You know, God, my enemies... The ones we're facing, those are your enemies. And God, your enemies are my enemies. That's the right attitude that David is having. God's enemies are my enemies. He is saying, God, deliver us, protect us. Because you know what? We are looking at our enemies the same way you are looking at your enemies. And then look at the verse 15 again as it ends. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Here is an attitude of confidence. It is a, it's parallel to verse 6. You will answer me. Yeah, it's not will, it's shall. It means the same thing. I shall behold your face in righteousness When I awake, and most likely that's the idea of when I um, uh, go beyond death, I shall be, I will be satisfied with your likeness. David ends with great confidence and assurance. And he says, I have the right attitude because God, I am aligned to you and to your ways. Now, those of you that have been here for a while know that this guarantee is not really a guarantee, is it? There's a lot of strings attached, aren't there? I mean, it's blindingly obvious. Who of us here has the right heart? Who is in the right position? Who who ha- uh, demonstrates the right attitude i mean romans 3 10 comes to mind none is righteous no not one it's true we cannot pray this prayer or or, or can we stay with me um Earlier, we read James 5, 16, right? The prayer of a righteous person, the prayer of a righteous man is what? Effective. Romans 3, there is none righteous. Whenever you run into this kind of a tension, and children, this is important, okay? This is very important. And adults, for all of this this tension is somehow going to be resolved. And it's going to be resolved in a person that we're now going to talk about. You see, there is a righteous man. There is only one righteous man. Uh, Go back to uh, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. I think a long time ago when we looked at Psalm 1, we came to the conclusion that there is that man who is blessed. That righteous man. You see... There is a righteous man whom God the Father has listened to. Remember in John chapter 9, Jesus is in a discussion with Pharisees. And he says this, that God listens to the godly person who does his will. And then, at the time Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead that we read about in John 11. We read these words in verses 40 through 42. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Think about David. David, verse 6, for you will answer me. I call upon you, you will answer me. Jesus continues, I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms, the Father listens to me. Indeed, the writer to the letter to the Hebrews says this about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and He was heard because of His reverence. Jesus was heard, not because He was divine, although He was, but Jesus was heard because of His reverence. He, he was righteous. He had the right heart. He acted out of the right position. He demonstrated the right attitude. So can we pray this prayer That David prayed? We can pray this prayer in Christ as we are united to Him by faith. So how do we pray this prayer? We pray in Christ, in the name of Christ. Because His prayers become our prayers. We are led by Jesus and we are joined to Him. And we pray corporately. Because the danger in reading the Psalms individually is you may say, oh, this persecution and suffering doesn't apply to me. Guess what? It applies to your brother and sister in Christ somewhere else right now. Or you read something and it's talking about being joyful and you say, wait a minute, I can't pray that right now because I am not joyful. Well, you know what? Probably somewhere a brother or a sister in Christ is acknowledging the Lord's provision and is filled with joy. So yes, the Psalms are really to be read and sung together as the body of Christ. Because you see, in Christ, we are reckoned to have the right heart. In my study, I ran across something very interesting, and that was this. Martin Luther... He rediscovered the truth of the gospel first, not in Galatians, as I may have earlier thought, and not even in Romans. Luther, it seems, discovered the truth of the gospel in the Psalms. Because there he saw that he was covered by the righteousness of another. Because the person, the believer, sees that in Christ... I am also one of the king's people. I'm the apple of the Lord's eye and he will defend me at all cost. As my king Jesus prays, I will join him in his prayer. And in Christ I can pray with the right attitude. Not only is there in Christ an immediate status of being justified, but there is a progressive shaping to be more like Christ and the Psalms help us as they reshape our desires. Well, I want to end now with a look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism and one of the church fathers. Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, 38 asks a good question and provides an outstanding biblical answer. The question is this. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? And the answer is this. At the resurrection, believers being being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. You see, there's a day coming... When the vindication of God's people will be made absolutely clear. We will be able to say we are innocent because we have trusted Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And you notice how that question ends? The full enjoying of God to all eternity. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I will be with the Lord forever. Augustine, one of the great early church fathers, said that one of the greatest functions of the Psalms is to show us what it means to be in Christ and to settle us there in our affections. So I want to end by asking this question Are you settled in Christ? Are the affections of your heart settled in Christ? The prayer of Jesus Christ has great power and it is working and it is working in all of you who have received and are resting upon Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. My friends, praise God for Psalm 17. Give thanks that it points us to the only one person who was and is and ever will be in and of Himself righteous. And it's by faith in Him and Him alone that God the Father, God the Judge, God the Redeemer looks upon us and sees the right heart, the right position, and the right attitude. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word Your word, which is indeed a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Father, we thank you for how this portion of your word pointed us not to ourselves. Because when we look in the mirror, we do not see this. But when we look in your word as a window through which we see Christ, we see Christ. Oh, Father, all our hope is in him would you strengthen your gathered people as we are about to be scattered that we would indeed know that our hope is built in Christ and His righteousness, that indeed everything else is sinking sand. O oh, Father, be pleased to grow your children more and more into, the for- into conformity of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.